Well, happy new year to you. It is 2020, which means that we are celebrating roughly 2,020 years since the birth of the Lord Jesus. And the amazing thing to me is that all over the world, whether people want to or not, they're acknowledging when they tell us the year 2020 that the hinge point in all of human history is Christ's entrance into the world. Now, if you think about it, that's actually logically sort of a strange thing to be counting from. Now, of course, theologically, it makes great sense. But logically, you would imagine that if we were going to say the year, we would do it from the point of creation. Because we're sort of talking about how old things are. Of course, you can imagine if we did that, it would be super confusing. There'd be some Jewish people that would be wishing you a happy 5780 today. There would be some Christians who would be wishing you a happy 6024 today. There would be lots of scientists, some Christian, some not, who would be wishing you a happy 4.43 billion plus or minus 50 million and one today. And then most of us would just have no idea what to say to one another. All of which points out the fact that when you think about creation, there's lots of confusion and there's lots of disagreement. And while I don't happen to think that the age of the earth meaning is it 5,780 years old? Is it 6,024 years old? Is it 4.543 billion plus or minus 50 million years old? I don't happen to think the age of the earth is a core fundamental Christian doctrine, meaning Christians can disagree about this and still be Christians. I do believe that creation itself is a core fundamental belief. And unfortunately, there's lots of confusion floating around it. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to think together about the doctrine or the truth of creation. What is it that God wants us to know and to believe about this created world in which we live? Now, you may be asking yourself, why is this our topic for this morning? Well, as a church, we've been going through the book of Titus, but a little differently than normal. We've been going through the book of Titus topically, meaning we've been letting the book of Titus choose the topics for us. And at this point, we have arrived at Titus chapter 2, verse 1, which says this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, I told you at the beginning of the series when we got to this verse, we weren't going to spend a lot of time actually studying that verse, but we're going to do what that verse tells us to do, which is we're going to study sound doctrine. And for the next nine weeks, we're going to be talking through some major truths that we as Christians should believe. Now, there's lots of ways to do this. 
The way that we're going to do it is something organized that we call salvation history, which means we're going to be progressing over the next nine weeks through nine major themes as they unfold thematically through the scripture. So we're going to talk about creation, election, redemption, Messiah, exile, incarnation, resurrection, spirit, and kingdom. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to be taking topics and trying to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And so we begin this morning with the doctrine of creation. Now there's way too much to cover in just one sermon on creation. And so what we're going to do is limit ourselves to the most important, most fundamental truth about creation. And so I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Book of Hebrews chapter 11, if you use one of the church Bibles, that's page 974. Nine hundred and seventy-four Hebrews chapter eleven. Hebrews eleven is a chapter that's all about faith. And listen as to how the chapter begins. Hebrews eleven, verse one, page nine seventy-four. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you know that what is going to follow is a list of people who exercised faith in lots of different areas of life. But what I want you to notice in verse 3, which is the first thing that faith affirms, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. This is the fundamental, non-negotiable truth about creation that every Christian must affirm. The universe was formed at God's command, meaning God spoke creation into existence. The opening line of the Bible is in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. We just affirmed it in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And the affirmation that is central to the doctrine of creation is that God is the creator. Now having said that, that doesn't answer questions about, well, where does evolution fit into this? 
What about six literal 24-hour days? How does that fit into this? It doesn't answer the question of how long ago did God create the world? It doesn't answer the question, what were the mechanics that God used? When? Why? How? This passage doesn't address those. Some other passages in Scripture do touch on those. But what this passage does is it tells us the most important thing to know about how to think about the other questions associated with creation. Look with me at the rest of verse 3. The universe was formed at God's command. Now pay close attention to this phrase. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now you're like, what is that about? God is telling us how he created the world. He created it using words. He spoke it into existence. And now he's telling us why he did it that way. It was a conscious choice to speak the world into existence. And the reason he did it was so that the things that are visible, the created world, were not made out of visible things. Now, what is that talking about? It's a little confusing. But essentially, what is being said here is God used something invisible, words, to speak visible things into existence so that the visible things might be made out of that which is invisible and known only by faith. In other words... Many of the things about how and when and the mechanics and why God is purposely hiding from science and from philosophy so that these might be accessible only by faith. Now, this is a little confusing. So let me take you to a story in Scripture that helped me understand more of what Hebrews 11.3 is saying and I pray might help you as well. Turn over to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, page 860. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Look in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John opens his gospel in the beginning. The book of Genesis opens in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what 
John is telling us is, is the person who did the creating in the beginning was Jesus. That God the Father created the world through Jesus, the Word of God. And that John is talking about the entrance of the creator of the world into the world that he created. And that he's here, Jesus came, to talk to us about the creation he created and to provide for us an experience of new creation and new life. And so at the very beginning of John's gospel, as he's going to orient our understanding of Jesus, he does so by speaking of Jesus as the creator of the world and the one who is coming to rescue his own creation. You with me? All right, now look down to verse 19. The first part of John 1 is an introduction of Jesus who's coming into his creation. Verses 19 to 28 is the introduction of Jesus's public ministry. This is what we would call his public ministry in John's gospel, day one. This is the start of Jesus' public ministry. Verses nine to 28. Do you see in verse 29 How it begins, the next day, which makes verses 29 to 34 day what? Day two. So we have day one of Jesus' public ministry, verses 28 to 34, 29 to 34, day two. What does verse 35 say? The next day, which makes verses 35 Uh, To 41, what? Day three. What does verse 43 say? The next day, which makes that next section what? Day four. Now look down to chapter two, verse one. What does it say? On the third day. So we have day one, day two, day three, day four. And then day five, day six, and what is the third day? Day seven, okay? These are the first seven days of Jesus' public ministry according to John's gospel. Does that sound significant? Remember, he is the creator of the world. Where does the number seven get its significance from? That God creates the world and on the seventh day, he rests. Here we have the creator, who is Jesus, who's come into his creation. And John says, how would you like to know about his first week? Here's what happened on day one. Here's what happened on day two. Here's what happened on day three. Here's what happened on day four. And which day do you think is probably the most interesting to people? Day seven. What did the creator of the whole world do on the seventh day in which he was present in his creation? 
Well, let's look and see. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what's Jesus doing on the seventh day, the creator of the world, what's he doing on the seventh day of his public ministry when he's entered into his creation? He's creating wine out of water at a wedding, right? John has set this story up to help us to understand something about creation and to help us to make sense of what Hebrews tells us about how God created. So let me ask you a couple of questions about this story as we think through it together. Number one, when in the story does the miracle happen? Do we know? We don't. It happens somewhere between verses 7 and 8. But nothing is said. Nothing is done. Jesus doesn't wave his hand. Jesus doesn't even speak audible words. Somewhere between verses 7 and 8, these jars of water have been transformed into wine. We don't know when it happened, and we don't know how it happened. We don't know if silently Jesus prayed and said, dear father, please turn this water into wine. We don't know if on his own authority, he simply commanded the water to become wine. We don't know the moment in which the water became wine, do we? because Jesus has hidden it from us. If he had done something visible, like waved his hands, or knelt down to pray, or looked up to heaven and given thanks, if he had done something visible, then we would know more details about how it happened. He doesn't do anything visible, 
it's completely invisible. There's water, and then somewhere between verses seven and eight, that water has become wine. Second question. How old is the wine? Well, on one hand, we would say a couple of seconds old, right? I mean, it was water, and now it's wine. And if we were going to technically age that wine, we would say, yeah, it's about three, four, five seconds old. However, if we had taken a scientist back with us, who was an expert at fermentation rates and figuring out how old wine was, and we asked her to examine the wine, and she didn't know that a miracle had taken place, how old do you think she would say the wine was? Well, she probably would have agreed with the master of the banquet, who's drunk enough wine to be able to taste some of the difference, and he recognizes when he drinks the wine, this is choice wine which means it's probably been aged between one and two years. In that culture, uh, wine that was aged between one and two years was the choicest wine. And so if we asked our scientist, who we took back with us, how old do you think this wine is? She probably would agree with the master of the banquet, measuring fermentation rates and those sorts of things, and come up with, uh, the wine is about one or two years old. Third question, who knows that a miracle has taken place in the story? Does the master of the banquet know? Nope. Do the bride and groom even know? They're probably like, look buddy, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Good wine, great. As long as you're happy, whatever's going on is good. Do most of the guests at the wedding know? No. Who knows? The servants, Jesus, Mary, and the disciples. The people to whom Jesus revealed that he did a miracle. Everybody else just simply thinks it's a wedding. You had wine. Now, if I went around and interviewed all of the guests who were not the servants or the disciples or Mary and Jesus and asked them where the wine came from, what do you think their answer would be? Well, somebody somewhere grew some grapes, right? And those grapes got ripe. And then somebody picked those grapes and they put them into a wine press and they got all the juice out and then they put the juice into a barrel or an urn or something, and then they let it ferment for probably first fermentation is three to five days, and then second fermentation, 40 days, and then they probably sealed it up with a big stone over top of it, buried it in the ground to keep it from spoiling, and left it there for about a year or two. Now, maybe they don't know all of those details, but the point is, if you ask them, where did the wine come from, they would simply say, well, wine comes from grapes. Like, this is how, would they be right? Yes, that's where wine comes from. But also, would they be wrong? Yes, because this wine didn't come from grapes. This wine came from water. And it came miraculously. 
And here's the point, and this is what I think Jesus is doing, and this is what I think John is doing. He's giving us this story to help us to understand what Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews says, this is how God created the whole world. He used invisible things so that the details would be hidden from science. So that it would only be accessible by faith. And so Hebrews not only affirms that God is the creator of the world, Hebrews also affirms there are certain things about the creation of the world that God has hidden from people. Jesus could have done this miracle in such a way that everybody knew exactly when it was happening, how it was happening, and why it was happening. And he chose not to do that. It fits with what he tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Where Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Do you know that God loves to hide things from smart people? He loves it. And he loves to reveal them to children. And Hebrews 11.3 and John 2 is affirming this is true about creation. God could have created the world in such a way that the wise and the learned could answer all of the questions through science and philosophy. He chose not to do it that way on purpose so that the truths about God as creator would be available only and ultimately through faith. All right, so what? I got two implications I'd like to share with you about the fact that God chose to hide the creation of the world from the world. And then two implications simply about the fact that God is the creator of the world that we should take away from that truth. Number one, God has chosen to hide many of the details about how he did creation so that it's accessible only by faith. And the first implication of this, which I think is for all of us, but especially for students, for professors in the sciences, for scientists, for science lovers, the implication of this comes out of 1 John 4. You dear, you dear children, and so I'm speaking here to the students, teachers, scientists, science lovers, those who work at the Van Andel Institute, those who are engaged in all sorts of the pursuit of science, you dear children, as children of God, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. 
but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And the first implication is, especially for those of you who are students in college and the sciences, when you go to your biology classroom, for those of you who are involved in studying and engaging with the scientific world and the scientific community, through stuff you might read online or through your job, your colleagues, if your colleagues and your professors and your teachers talk about creation as if everything evolved out of nothing over billions of years, that's not unexpected because God set it up that way. Just like if we went back and asked most of the people at Cana, where did the wine come from? They would have given the answer, somebody grew some grapes, those grapes fermented, those grapes were stored, and now we're drinking that wine. It's okay that there are people who are not Christians who describe the creation of the earth using scientific, evolutionary, biological processes because that's how you would describe it. They are speaking from the viewpoint of the world, and that's okay because God has allowed it to be that way. And just like nobody at the wedding at Cana, none of the servants and none of the disciples go up to the master of the banquet and say, uh, excuse me, that's not where the wine came from. They don't say that. They don't feel it's necessary because the only way to know a miracle has taken place in John 2 is for God to reveal it by faith. So what I'm saying to you is, as you engage with, as you're asked questions on tests about evolution, as you're asked questions about the age of the earth, as you're asked questions or you have to participate with people about all sorts of scientific things, it's okay to answer those questions the way it would be answered if you were asked, where does wine come from? God has set it up that way so that the world talks about the creation of the world using what it has at its disposal, which is science and philosophy. And for you, as you have to engage with people who are talking about things from the world's point of view, you can talk about it from the world's point of view. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, you can be a scientist who absolutely believes God spoke the world into creation and still engage as a Christian with what the rest of the world is doing in the sciences. I happen to believe, this is just my belief, that the world is not very old. I happen to think it looks very old because God created it with apparent age. This wine looks like it's a couple of years old. It's not, but it looks like it is. And the point, the first implication is, if you're engaging with someone about the age of the wine, you don't have to have an argument if the master of the banquet says, it looks to me like it's two years old. I can talk with someone and say, that's fine. It looks to you like it's billions of years old. It looks to me like it might be billions of years old. That doesn't negate the fact that from my point of view, by faith, I don't think it's billions of years old. And the point is simply this, not how old is the earth. The point is, because God chose to do it this way, 
it's completely understandable that those who don't have faith are going to talk about the creation of the world using what they have available to them to talk about the creation of the world. And you can engage with them in that way and still believe that God created the world out of nothing, simply speaking it into existence. Second implication, and it's the warning to all of us, and as a former engineer, I sort of feel this myself. It's very easy to make an idol out of science. It's very easy to make an idol out of science. Because on one hand, science gets so many things right. And there's many things about science that are very helpful for the studying of creation. My faith as a Christian is strengthened from the fact that the scientific world does seem to acknowledge that this universe is calibrated for our existence. I find that to be encouraging. I also find it encouraging that science is having trouble figuring out where does consciousness come from? Where do emotions come from? How does the concept of self-sacrifice ever get into the system through evolutionary sort of means? When I hear scientists struggling with that, that affirms my faith. And so while there are a great many benefits that science brings to help explaining the world around us, there's always a danger that because science gets so much right, that we think it should get everything right. And that what we begin to want is something that is visible, verifiable, repeatable, explainable, and provable. But the fact of the matter is, Many of the truths that we believe, we believe not by science, but by faith. We believe them by faith because God has revealed them to us. There is no scientific way to prove that Jesus turned that water into wine, either for the people that were there or the people here today. It is not possible to prove it. And there is no scientific way to prove that God created the world. God set it up so it can't be proven scientifically. But some of us don't like that. We want to be able to prove it. We want everything to point in that direction. We don't want there to be any doubts. We don't want there to be any disagreement. We want everybody to be able to see the scientific evidence and know God is the creator of the world. And the problem is that makes an idol out of science. Essentially what we're saying to God is we don't like the way you created. We wish you would have created in such a way that nobody would ever doubt. And God says, I didn't create that way. And so you and I have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't wish for something that God didn't give us. What he gave us was a beautiful creation that is studied very effectively and very powerfully by the scientific and philosophic communities. But the creation of the world was spoken into existence using something invisible so that it couldn't be seen. It couldn't be repeated. It couldn't be verified. It couldn't be proven. 
It couldn't be known by science. It could only be known by faith. Those are two implications of how God chose to create using something invisible. As we close, let me just share with you a couple of implications of the fact that God is the creator of the world. The first is this. Everything belongs to God. The whole earth, the heavens, it's all God's. This building, this country, this world, it's God's. You and I belong to God. Our money, our children, our relationships, our abilities, our energy, everything we have belongs to God. He is the creator of all things. There is nothing that exists on this planet or any other planet anywhere in the universe that exists apart from God, and therefore everything belongs to him. And the point is, just as the creator of the universe entered his creation once, he will come back again, this time as judge. And he's going to ask us what we did with his creation. How did we take care of his earth that he owns because he created it? He's going to ask us what we did with our lives. We think they're ours, but they're his. He created them. We will have to give an account. Every single person will have to give an account to the creator what we did with the lives, the energy, the gifts, the resources that he entrusted to us. So please, it's not enough simply to believe that Jesus is the creator to not also recognize that because he's the creator, he's Lord. And every single thing that you and I think we possess, everything we think we have, even life itself, is a gift from a very kind creator. But he will one day ask, what did we do with this creation? Second implication. Not only is God the creator of the world, but because he's its creator... He's also its sustainer. Sometimes when you think about creation, you think about evolution, you think about science, you think about all these things, you can kind of get this idea that God is some sort of computer programmer or sat off in space somewhere, typed up the program, let it run, and now it's off running on its own. And he's kind of watching. And he's sitting back and saying, well, let's see what you're going to do with this. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus says, a sparrow, two sparrows are sold for a penny. They're worthless. But not one of them falls to the ground without your father knowing it. That God has the very hairs on our head numbered. That God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked alike. That God fashions and forms each and every human being in their mother's womb. Can you imagine? Every single one of us God formed and fashioned us exactly the way we are. That the number of our days were written down in a book before even one of them came to be. 
And the truth of the matter is God is not only creator, he is sustainer and he is intimately engaged and involved in our lives, in everything that happens. And nowhere is that more beautifully portrayed than in John 2. Here is the creator of the world showing up unannounced to a wedding. And in the midst of the wedding, he sees a bride and a groom who don't have enough wine. And without drawing any attention to it, he simply out of kindness and mercy uses his miraculous power to bless them and encourage them and love them. See, the answer to the question of why did God create the world? It's not given in Hebrews, but it is given in John. And it's because God loves the world. And he loves you. And he loves being present in your struggles. And he loves bringing the same power that created this entire universe to bear on the difficulties and the trials and the troubles that you and I go through. He is not a distant creator. He is near to us. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.